Hello and welcome to another episode of the View from the Byline podcast. I'm Peach Funrich and again I'm joined by Matt Lee and Alex Brinton. How are we chaps? Yeah I'm good thanks just trying to keep myself busy. Yourself? Yeah I'm good thanks Matt. Enjoying the uh, sunshine at the moment. It's quite nice up here in Derbyshire. Alex how's life uh, in Hampshire? Yeah good thanks mate. Enjoying it. Just trying to keep stay sane in these mad times. Well in today's podcast we're really fortunate to be joined by the former political editor at BuzzFeed News UK and now the media editor of The Guardian, Jim Waterson. It's horrifying and terrifying but to see it in the flesh is something that normal people don't get to do. There's a lot to distrust about journalists. So on the third day I turned up with my housemate's frying pan and cooked a egg sandwich on the street using the heat. People don't really want to be told that they've just believed a load of rubbish. So until 2015, what was weird was we were sort of mocking lightly politics. You know, it was like, oh, politics is boring, so we'll make it fun. Unfortunately, the truth is rarely as interesting or entertaining as the lie. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. It's really great to have you uh, on here and obviously taking some time out from what seems like a very busy job that you've got at the moment. I think you've almost demonstrated that in the few moments we sort of chat just now. We're just going to try and talk to you a bit about your experience in the industry uh, some of your views on it as well, because obviously as a media editor, you, uh, you're both working in and some might say critiquing that fair point. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very strange job and one that I actually, in a very pathetic way, had kind of wanted since I was a teenager, reading Media Guardian online and trying to understand why you see the things that you do when you're consuming bits of the media, why certain political stances get promoted and why we end up basically having the media world that we do which is so much of politics and technology uh, and it also shapes so many of our opinions on things based on what we're reading and the reasons behind that are always fascinating so I've always been a total obsessive with trying to see how information flows around the world and I still can't quite believe I've got my dream job at my dream publication doing it. So you sort of spoke about uh reading the media media online was it for the guardian? media media guardian um media guardian. back when that you know yeah. you know there was there used to be so much money in media reporting because there were so many jobs in mm. the media that they all needed somewhere to advertise those jobs and so there sprung up in the sort of 90s and 2000s all of these outlets that covered the media basically And as the media has shrunk, so have the number of jobs covering it. So there's very few of us who really have the freedom to aggressively report on how the news is made and how the media is made. There's only a handful of people in the UK who get to do it. Uh, And that's why it's a very weird job. It's a very unusual one. You're reporting on people often that I know socially uh, and reporting on... um, on things that often annoy people you might want a job from at some point in the future. So it's quite, uh, you, you, you know, you've got to be willing to basically annoy people who you're likely to bump into. Yeah. So we try and ask each guest three quick fire questions just to get us started. So first to you then, Jim, when was the first time you realised you wanted to be a journalist? Um, when I realised it was a really good way of getting into gigs for free. Um, <laughs> so when I was a teenager, uh, I... Um, I had a friend called Richard Foster who was a mad uh, Lancastrian who'd moved to the Netherlands and we were both into this band called British Sea Power and I used to, as a teenager, sort of follow them around the country and I realised, well, if I say I write a fanzine, then they'll probably let me meet them. So I would Mm. sort of basically 
pretend to be writing for a publication that was basically a hundred copies run off on a photocopier at my dad's office when I could get a moment. <laughs> um, and it just felt like too good a scam that like I could meet bands and get into gigs for free and hang out with them if I said I was writing for someone. And that felt too good to be true. Um, and then after a while, I realized that I don't have any particularly great writing brilliance in terms of flourishes and no one really wants either music reviews or my views on music in particular anymore. So news is way more fun and you can cause a massive sting and finding out something that no one else knows is just incredibly fun. Mm. Yeah, I think it is really quite uh, fun writing something that you're passionate about, that's for sure. Um, in that sense, this is a different one totally, but um, if you could pick a historical event over the uh, history of time to cover, what might you pick? That is, that's like one of those classic questions. Um, so I'm going to be really contrary and say that how you can't get a kick out of covering something like the coronavirus pandemic, I don't know. You know, you might want to have been the guy who was uh, riding the tank uh, on the D-Day beach, capturing it to bring it to the world. It might have been more fun to be on TV in the 70s when you had a captive audience and the whole world didn't hate journalists. Um, but equally, the kick I get out of the sense of just occasionally when I feel like I've done a piece that might push the boundaries a little bit on online disinformation or reveal a little bit about how uh, the Saudi state is using UK publications to push its narrative and use, you know, showing things that you wouldn't have been able to expose 10 years ago because the tools weren't there. I get a kick out of reporting on now. Um, and in some ways, there's, with fewer journalists around in many respects and more tools available, you can do an awful lot more as an individual now than you might have been able to in the past. So I'm kind of happy here. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point you make. Um, and then finally, our third sort of quickfire question, having sort of spent probably a decade or so in the industry, what would you have told yourself starting out? Am I right at a business, uh, paper, free business paper, City AM? Or? Yeah, I was at City AM was my first job, which weirdly I got because a different fan of British Sea Power got me an interview. Um, the, I think the thing I'd tell myself I wouldn't believe would be that the online publishing boom would end up fizzling out a bit and that newspapers would still be the outlets that dominated the agenda. I probably would equally be amazed at how similar the industry in 2020 looked to 2010 when I was starting out, but how clearly that this might be the year where it finally breaks and changes. Right. So I think I'd just be amazed that it, things haven't changed as much, but also um, just being aware that sort of, I feel very much that my first decade is going to be a very different one to my next decade in this industry. Yeah, it's very much a changing time as a result of, uh, well, the world around us and obviously the coronavirus and other aspects. It's changing media as we know it. Um, so as we were talking about your sort of role at City AM, you went from there to political editor at BuzzFeed. Yeah, I, I yeah. still can't believe I got that. I had to... Yeah. Um, I applied cold, completely cold. I was uh, working two years out of uni, working for a free business paper called City AM. And uh, if there's one lesson I would recommend, it's that 
take the job in journalism and learn that it's not all about writing passionate op-eds on the things that you care about. It's also quite useful to know how to read a company balance sheet for an insurance business and write a 300 word story on that. And that actually has been one of the best things that ever happened to me is spending two years being paid very little um, at a free paper where you're expected to write five or six stories a day and they have to be vaguely legible and I didn't have any training I didn't know what I was doing but you just had to start and get on with it and get the quotes and get the stories and um, my favorite one there was uh, we got a phone in from someone who said that there's a, a reflected ray of light coming off this building in the city of London and they didn't really know what was going on so I went along there with a the photographer and we found that someone's car was melting because this new skyscraper I remember this, yeah. so uh i went right so we ran you know first day we did a sort of proper tabloid front page of walkie talkie melting my jag with an angry man looking at his car <laughs> and then we went well everyone in the world thought this was a great story because there was nothing on so we then turned up the following day and did more on how it was burning people's hair and then it was like well what do we do next so on the third day i turned up with um my housemate's frying pan and cooked a uh, egg sandwich on the street using the heat and that was the moment at which uh like that was live on sky news and that was the moment at which basically the company that built it just went okay we're screwed we've got to spend like 10 frying <laughs> <laughs> eggs and that went around the world our, our website actually crashed and I kind of that's not only the best story I'll ever do when I peak very early but um, it, it's also like a really good example of okay so there's a serious point there's a genuine threat of a skyscraper that's been built which has all sorts of serious issues about how did you let that happen but there's also the quite fun way of presenting it and making it interesting to people which is oh, did you see that some bloke fried an egg using it so you can kind of I always love stories that you can make a a serious point while also getting people interested in them and too many people forget the second bit. I think that works really well considering we're sort of going to ask you about you joined BuzzFeed uh, in 2013 when it was sort of I mean I found that it was described by your um, current employee The Guardian as a social sharing news and entertainment site and obviously you're a political editor but yeah, I applied for my House of Commons past, which I used to have at City AM because I was, again, I was just very lucky. They, they you know, I was like 22, three and they'd given me their, their lobby pass because basically they didn't have anyone else. So um, I couldn't already believe it when I was wandering around Parliament, not really knowing how to be a reporter already with the past. Uh, but um, yeah, BuzzFeed, uh, I applied for a renewed pass and they said well according to your website you do you do social news and uh we're political at the house of parliament i think they sort of felt that i was like covering like debutante balls and tapler stuff <laughs> and i think they thought meant to, they thought they meant society news um so that was quite weird uh but eventually we got in and um yeah i had the best part of five years there and certainly the first two or three we we felt like we were reinventing everything and they were the most extraordinary weird bunch of people that they brought together and we all um were very young bounced ideas off each other understood where the internet was going and honestly i don't think i i mean that was my real training and i don't think i'll ever have as much fun and the ideas that other people had in that office which i still draw on on a daily basis are incredible there were some real geniuses there was it quite exciting sort of having almost because i believe buzzfeed uk started up earlier well in 2013 
Am I right in saying that? Or is it sooner? Yeah, um, I joined about six months after yeah. it started. So they, they didn't really have news people at that point. Um, but the, the, there was just this enormous influx of cash into online news startups around then. Facebook had just, just started making news a big thing. And until that point, they didn't really. Yeah. It, it sounds weird, but until 2013, you really didn't have much news on Facebook. And now we actually don't have much news on Facebook again. There was just a weird four or five year period. Um, and suddenly overnight, we could almost, you know, if you worked out what headlines were clickable, you could guarantee a million views on a post. And that was, you know, we, we, for about 18 months, we were the only ones who really understood how to kill it. And we were really killing it on a daily basis. Yeah. You know, you could come up with something fun, subversive, and then make it go mainstream because you understood how to hack the distribution system. And it was as much about, there was so much more journalistic rigor at BuzzFeed than there were at, was at, at many mainstream outlets. And we knew how to hack the distribution system in terms of which words people click on. And yeah, I'll, I, again, like, to be in your mid-twenties um, with people desperate to get on your site and you feeling like you've worked out how news works. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was fun while it lasted. Obviously, 2013 to 2018, they're some of the most uh, memorable political years in British history in recent times anyway. Was it, was it did it feel um, strange sort of having to produce sort of content for BuzzFeed and trying to sort of... Uh, wade through all this political jargon sometimes yeah we were quite good at cutting through the crap um but we also i think there was a definite mark change in tone so until 2015 you had uh cameron versus ed Miliband, who while the big policy differences were presentationally perceived to be from the same cloth in terms of both with you know the sort of people who'd care what the sun wrote about them and care about media management in the traditional sense and uh you know online politics was still a niche thing it was like a sort of a box where the obsessives would go and hide out and act differently and it wasn't really like your mum was sharing memes on um on what she thought about politics and you didn't have WhatsApp groups where the bloke down the pub was sharing claims about Jeremy Corbyn that he couldn't verify. So until 2015, what was weird was we were sort of mocking lightly politics. You know, it was like, oh, politics is boring, so we'll make it fun. Which yeah. I, I slightly wonder whether we went too far in that direction and that, that doesn't age particularly well. That it felt very clever at the time, but maybe it, it actually sort of understated the importance of this stuff to people's lives. So I've, I've sort of reflected on that a bit since. And then after 2015, when you had Jeremy Corbyn in the UK and then Trump and Brexit, um, that kind of real lightness of tone just didn't feel as appropriate. And no. you, you really see that in terms of certainly where Buzzfeed's gone now. Um, you know, it's, it's political reporting isn't the sort of stuff I was doing very early doors where we do, you know, like, this crazy vine of a, of a Tory MP has gone viral. Oh my God, we're going to screen grab all the five minutes and turn it into, you know, five gifs. It's now really, really brilliant insider reporting. And it's just telling that that's where it's ended up because if you were doing quirky Wahey stuff, that, that just doesn't feel like the tone of the moment in terms of politics. That's what you can do when it's boring. Yeah, I wish it was boring again in some ways. <laughs> Something 
something similar to that with your experience with BuzzFeed must be looking at Lad Bible and their reputation now. I mean, throw it back a couple of years and they're very much a view of a stereotypical lad culture, but now they've evolved into a media brand that's able to ask questions in the media briefings that are going on at the moment. Do you think that that was reflective of what BuzzFeed was going through at the time as well? Um, yes, to an extent, although I think the thing with BuzzFeed was that always um, what we were doing and uh, uh, was so far ahead of where people perceived the brand. And it's amazing. You can do anything with an established brand. Um, but if you're the upstart, you've got to be twice as good as the rivals in order to get your stuff out there. So yeah. no, what was noticeable was that for the first year I was there, people would share a link to BuzzFeed going like, oh, I can't believe I'm sharing a link to BuzzFeed, but I guess this is quite good. Um, and then it was like, I mean, yeah, this is quite good for BuzzFeed. And then it was, ah, here's a link. Um, and they'd stopped even having to comment that they felt yeah. embarrassed. Um, and that was the, that was the real pride. Um, we also found that there was usually about a year to 18 month lag on where people's perceptions of something were versus what you were doing. So it would take you about a year of really being brilliant at something before people really clogged. Ah, no, they're really good at that. So that's something just to bear in mind, you know, um, reputations take a long time to establish and can also be blown apart in a very short period. How easy did you find it adjusting from the sort of stories you'd would be writing for City AM and then BuzzFeed? Obviously, two sort of quite almost poles apart, really. How how easy was that adjustment to make? I, I think it was quite hard. It took me a long time to understand it. At first, I also felt very embarrassed because BuzzFeed was so fun and I was doing niche politics stuff and, you know, still at the point where I wasn't confident enough as a reporter to know what was a really good news story and what was not. Um, and, you know, I, I ended up... Uh, I can't remember, I think I must have been about 24 when I was given that job and I was hiring people and trying to run a team not very effectively um, and doing TV and radio appearances and basically being very, very out of my depth um, and stuff that I now instinctively know how to do. I just didn't have a clue. Mm. So um, it was really hard and I didn't uh, have a lot of, guidance but i had some brilliant editors um ben smith who is the sort of guy who invented buzzfeed as a journalism outfit which is an amazing move he was there and recently left this year he was the most amazing person to talk through on a story and when you're 24 to get access to someone like that who'll give you a bit of guidance is just an incredible feeling but it also taught me a lot about the power of just kind of winging it and that you know rather than going I can see the number of people reading a story if you phone up Downing Street and go right we've got a load of young people you want to reach young people give us an interview with the Prime Minister and they go all right yeah we'll find David Cameron's diary and we'll we'll find a slot for you and and, and I, I kept expecting them to sort of say no you know you're, you're you're not real enough you're not proper enough and then you realize no you just gotta you kind of gotta act like you uh, know what you're doing um, and then hopefully at some point you'll eventually really work it out so yeah it took a lot of adjustment and also writing for BuzzFeed is really hard because people never really come to BuzzFeed or a site like that they don't come to the homepage, so you've got to sell every story um, for sharing so it's got to be good 
um, to an extent, if you're writing for a site with a massive homepage audience, people are gonna read what you put in front of them. It's a bit like a traditional newspaper. They will look at what you believe the news to be. But with BuzzFeed, you gotta have a great headline, you gotta have a great picture, you gotta have fascinating new details. And I always had the rule of thumb that if it wasn't funny, exclusive or different, no one was going to read it. And that was generally the case. So that's a lot more stressful than just going yeah. right up that court case that's around today. So during your time covering uh, politics, was there, ever any, any, was there ever a case where um, you found you just couldn't quite believe what you were sort of hearing or seeing? Um, too many, uh, too many weird bits. Um, I kind of, by virtue of BuzzFeed, sort of became a default internet politics person who sort of sometimes couldn't quite believe the stuff that was going viral and how bad people were. But I think that the real kick from being a journalist and the bit that is the most enormous privilege and also something that journalists don't appreciate is that sense of just getting to be somewhere, getting to be in the room when something happens. And occasionally I was very lucky with that. And I was remembering the other day going with Theresa May on her jet to um, Downing, uh, to, to what, the White House for her first press conference with Donald Trump, the one where- uh, Holding hands one. Where they were brought holding hands. And uh, you know, you're on that jet, you're, um, can't quite believe you're getting paid to do this. The prime minister comes down for the little huddle. I mean, the lobby has so many issues. The lobby is the group of people who cover politics. Yeah. Um, you know, as an institution, it is deeply, deeply flawed. Um, but there is nothing quite like that sense if you're one of the individuals lucky enough to be in it of going, right, I'm there. I can literally ask the prime minister any question I want and see if I can get it to give a decent response. And then we're going to go to the White House and, and try and do the same with Donald Trump. And the chaos of that press conference when there were just hundreds of journalists swarming in the room, running around, all of the like nut job right wing outlets who'd been invited for the first time were there. Um, and all the British journalists weren't allowed in at first because the embassy had submitted our dates of births in the UK format and they didn't understand it. Uh, <laughs> first in the States. So, you know, it was just one of those sort of like, we're at the centre of a, a global insane circus and it's horrifying and terrifying, but to see it in the flesh is something that normal people don't get to do. Did you get on well with many of the people in the lobby? Or is it so? Do you find it a bit of a closed shop? People been there a long time, or were they quite open giving you advice? Um, the lobby, particularly when I first joined, there were a few people who were particularly brilliant at uh, being very, very kind. Rob Hutton at Bloomberg, in particular, had no need to take an interest in some young upstart with an internet outlet who wanted to do some stuff, but he did. And you remember from the very start uh, the people who take the time. Um, and give a damn about you early on in your career and you never forget that because if you just don't understand where's everyone getting this press release from why is that being done like that yeah ask questions and someone who's willing to take those questions is always always a good person um that said the lobby is clearly a problematic institution it's uh results in people covering all of politics rather than specialisms who actually know what the story of the day is about it is dominated and i am not uh, a solution to this i'm part of the problem it's dominated by white men who went to a few universities and that absolutely is reflected in terms of the questions that are asked and the approach to stories 
um, and there is also a chumminess to it. It's one of the last few sort of proper cliques in journalism. And because of that, a group think undoubtedly happens across all outlets because you end up working alongside rival outlets rather than sort of with your colleagues back in the office. So some sort of lobby arrangement is inevitable. You need people to be a point of contact with Downing Street. You need a limited number of journalists who can be accredited to events. It does just have a load of issues that are quite hard to iron out and which are rightly often criticised. Politics is obviously a very personal thing. So when you're covering it, how easy did you find it um, keeping your personal biases and views out of everything you're writing about? That's a really annoyingly good question. Um, I, my honest answer <coughs> is that I am constantly in envy of the people in politics and people who are columnists who are absolutely sure of the solution to the world's problems and feel that things have been definitively worked out. And I only wish that I had that certainty. Um, I am constantly unsure of where I should be on certain key things and I'm constantly doubting my own judgment on that, which is why I actually think I find it easier to talk to people and try and understand their point of view and maybe then go and find that I don't think it's accurate in my reporting but I'm very grateful that I don't have to commit myself to saying that this is the only solution to that problem Um, so really the honest answer is that my politics are while aligned with you know the broad tone of the Guardian which is the paper I grew up reading, um, far from set in stone. And that, that yeah. sort of makes it easier to really critique some of the people that I was dealing with because you do see people, certainly in the lobby, who feel that they know what the answer is before they've asked the question and they're going to write the story regardless of what the answer is. So I guess um, moving on to your role at um, The Guardian, which you took on in 2018 as media editor, um, I just want to sort of uh, ask you a qu- quite straightforward question, really, I guess. Well, it might not be, in fact. Um, but do you enjoy social media and the media? I love it. I'm addicted. I'm never <laughs> off of it. I'm, I, I, um, I, I was really into music forums um, back in the early days of the internet and from a very young age. I mean, we're currently in a pandemic with me on lockdown, spending all my time inside on the internet. That was basically my teenage years as well. So it sort of feels like, <laughs> um, you know, so I would spend a lot of time on music forums in sort of 2004, five, understanding how stuff spread, reading news obsessively. And, uh, uh, and that sort of developed then into social media before even Facebook was around. Um, so I've always felt that my community is online and I love seeing how this stuff spreads and how things connect up um i don't like instagram i've never really been on there i had an account for a while which was basically just images of me train spotting to annoy my partner who didn't really like uh, uh like the fact that i wouldn't uh, put fun interesting pictures on instagram um but i uh twitter is is where i live basically. I mean, I, and I don't exaggerate. I spend hours a day on there. It's where I get stories. It's where people contact me about stories. It's where journalists uh, sit so you can push stories to them. Twitter has made my career to a certain extent and I'm well aware of that. 
and I think it shows as well the fact that yesterday I messaged, I dropped you a DM, and today we're here sort of chatting online. That, that's just because so. I'm. That's just because I got no attention span because of social media. <laughs> so if I, if I didn't respond to you immediately. Oh, it's not. It's all yeah. good. <laughs> you're sort of reporting on the media do you think that in a way adds fuel to the fire of certain people in the public having a distrust for journalists yeah hopefully i mean there's a lot to Is that your... <laughs> there's, there's a lot to distrust about journalism um um i don't hate tabloids um i don't think anything uh, is necessarily inherently evil i think it's possible to have as an individual reader a view that you don't like a certain publication um, and if you're the sort of person who for instance doesn't like the sun you can think it has a vile editorial tone and a vile owner but you can still accept it has for better or worse a role in society and it isn't going away so you might as well understand why the bits that it's doing are doing what they're doing you might want to think that there's some way you might be able to convince them to change some of what they're doing, if not all of it. For instance, that page three campaign was successful just through pressure outside uh, the sun. Um, you might not like the Daily Mail, but you might still be able to accept it occasionally breaks brilliant stories that shine light on wrongdoing. Um, you know, it's messy. Uh, there's con conflicts at the heart of all of this. Uh, and again, I, I struggle with anyone who sees things in purely black and white terms, but you can't get away from the fact that large swathes of the British public basically hate the mainstream media as it stands in certain outlets in particular, and that that's not always entirely without a good reason. So, you know, we have an odd place at The Guardian. We're loathed by a large chunk of the population, but also read by many of the same people. And, um, I can honestly say I can't think of anywhere other than maybe the Financial Times where you get away with doing the reporting that we do on the media. Do you, do you often get much sort of pushing back from journalists that you criticise or do they just sort of take it on the chin? Yeah, I mean, look, there's some jumped up um, person who's only been in the industry for a decade who's telling them how they're doing their jobs, critiquing them and saying whether or not they're, they're good or not. I mean, if you're some reporter who's done the rounds for decades and you feel that uh, that guy's having a go at you, sure you're going to take it personally, but anyone you report on is going to take it personally. Politicians take it personally. So um, I do think that, yeah, you, you, it's an inherently quite arrogant job to be a media reporter and critique fellow journalists. You're not going to be the number one popular person. Um, but I can tell you also that journalists are absolutely thirsty for gossip and love to pass stuff on. <laughs> love to ask what you've heard and ask if you can pass a bit of gossip on. So, you know, you, you do find yourself offered as a sort of receptacle in the middle for uh, the rumours that are doing the rounds. The Sunday Times has been in the news a lot recently because of their investigations into the days that Britain walked into the current crisis that we're in. People were spreading screenshots of that story online and journalists were coming back saying it's behind a paywall and that paywall is important in order to fund quality journalism. Is that something that you agree with in that to have those digital paywalls is important, uh, is an important aspect in funding quality journalism? And is that a future that you can see for more publications and outlets? 
Well, I mean, if you look across national newspapers in the UK, the FT, the Times, the Telegraph are now all behind paywalls. That pretty much leaves the Guardian as the main broadsheet outlet in the UK, which isn't, and that's only possible due to our fairly unique arrangement of reader donations and um, uh, money from the Scott Trust, which owns us. Um, you know, and a massive online audience, which you can actually make some money out of, although obviously that's been hit hard by the pandemic and the advertising downturn. So basically uh, relying on advertising alone um, to fund quality journalism is clearly not a sustainable future in the long term. And I think everyone accepts that now. But to find some way of getting people to cough up or finding someone rich to cough up or finding anyone to put cold hard cash in because Fundamentally, the problem with selling online digital advertising is that there is an unlimited space on the internet and a limited number of pounds available for that money. Uh, whereas in the days of print newspapers, if you wanted to reach a Guardian reader, then pretty much the only way to guarantee of doing that was to buy that front page advert and we could name the price. So yeah, what's changed. It's, it's, it's pretty simple economics. Um, you know, you can add 10 million page views and make a few quid. Um, whereas you, in the old days, could add 10,000 print sales and make an awful lot of money. So the media plays a growing role in our lives um, with 5G network, uh, conspiracy theories, data theft, as well as sort of WhatsApp and social media spreading fake news. What would you sort of, as a media editor of one of the UK's leading newspapers, what would you say is the biggest concern for you in the media? Money. Just money. I mean, just where, where's the money going to come from to fund anything resembling uh, traditional journalism? How many outlets do you need and who's going to fund them? Um, it's not complicated. I remember doing an interview with the chief executive of the New York Times about 18 months ago. who was basically like, it's pretty simple. You have more quality journalism if you spend more money on it. Um, it, it just goes up the more money you put into it because you can hire better staff, give them more freedom and let them go and get better stories. So uh, if that's something that we want as a society, how many outlets are sustainable? How many do we need? And how are we gonna fund them um, are the questions that we need to ask. And it's not hard. Um, there is not a lot of money to be made out of news. There never has and there never probably will be. Uh, there was a brief period where newspapers could make money because they had loads of lovely holiday supplements and car adverts and things like that. But that was a bit of an aberration in the sort of long arc of history. Um, and so it's, it's pretty simple. When I started trying to get paid gigs 10 years ago, doing freelance shifts, filling in bits of the independent for 60 quid a day, you know, writing up little stories for sidebars and things like that. Uh, I, basically thought newspapers were doomed at that point and amazingly we could probably get a similar shift just about today um, obviously not the independent but at some other outlet uh, but I kind of feel that this is an end game era for a lot of British news outlets as we know it and that they'll either have to adapt or they won't survive. Do you sort of see a reach for the audiences do you think they're willing to go online? Audiences are already online. Why are we still having this conversation? It's nuts. Like, um, print newspaper sales are, uh, due to the pandemic, down to something like 5 million a day. Um, yeah. The audiences for the Guardian's homepage are several multiples of that in the UK on a daily basis. It's nuts. We're still talking of 
uh, we're still talking about things as if you know everyone is getting their news by trotting down to the shops and getting a print paper. That's that's the reason that's still prevalent is because that's still where a lot of the money comes from. But the idea that audiences are there. I mean, uh, you know, I'm talking to people who are doing a journalism degree in year 2020. Um, and I was, you know, rarely buying papers uh, when I was in your position. So it's it's crazy that we're still having this conversation. You know, it, it, the audiences have gone online and they're not coming back. The issue is, can you convince enough of them to in any way pay some money towards yeah, sorry, that's, Of course, you are right in saying journalism is online, but are we going to want to pay for it online? Well, some places are making it work. The Guardian is getting... Um, you know, sort of 10 to 15% of its revenue already from people who are giving contributions to the company because they believe in the mission of The Guardian. Obviously, we're quite a weird, unique case with the uh, sort of political space in the UK. Um, but there is some hope there. There's also uh, clear evidence that people will pay for quality stuff. My real fear is that, and I say this as someone who pays a couple hundred quid a year for a Financial Times subscription, which I love, um, is that I can afford to do that and a lot of people can't. And I worry that you end up with a world where um, people like me get brilliant news from behind paywalls and from you know what The Guardian can put out for free using our unique hybrid model. And then a lot of people get absolute dross because it's being written by you know, the intern with no oversight but still reaching millions of people and paid for by some foreign government. Because mm. that's the option. You could end up with a world in which, uh, you know, there's a sort of well-off elite who have yeah. brilliant news, better journalism than ever before, and uh, a mass audience who have to suffer absolute dross. It is, it is a worrying thought, that's for sure. Um, sort of a class divide. Uh, yeah, something like that, yeah. Uh, Jim, it's been really great to talk to you about the, your insight into the industry. What's uh, the rest of your day got planned? Are you back into the uh, minefield that is journalism during the coronavirus? Uh, I'm, I'm spending my days tracking down new ways that the British public are believing absolute rubbish on the internet and in a sort of failing attempt to try and get them to read the debunks because unfortunately the truth is rarely as interesting or entertaining as the lie and you can spend 24 hours proving something's false and people don't really want to be told that they've just believed a load of rubbish so no, you know, it, it can be a bit thankless but it can also be quite fun the best part of this job is that you genuinely genuinely don't know what you're going to be reporting on day to day and you can spend a week on something and then get the biggest story of your career in the space of two hours the following morning and you didn't know what it was going to be when you woke up until that phone call from that source came in and you know there's nothing like journalists for um, making their own jobs sound like the most important things in the world I, I try not to kid myself that the world is desperate for someone reporting on the media industry um, but it's certainly hopefully I can explain a little bit about how a key part of our world works to people who wouldn't otherwise be able to understand it yeah well, like I said, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, obviously, really appreciate all your time uh, giving us that insight into your experiences and uh, especially given your career path through is so interesting. It's been really good to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me on. That's all from this week's episode of the View from the Byline podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. Next week, 
We'll be joined by the BBC News' technology correspondent, Roy Kettlin-Jones. But in the meantime, make sure to drop a follow on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts to keep up to date with all things the View from the Byline podcast. Take care and see you next week.